Jim Crow was not a regional sickness. It was a national cancer. Northern liberals often critiqued the Southern systems of Jim Crow, but dismissed with a colorblind eye the structures and institutions of the Northern Jim Crow. However, the myth of isolated, non-structural racist incidents was not bought by everyone. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to the People's Forum Podcast. My name is Frizzly, and I am pleased to bring you this two-part investigation into the system Northern Jim Crow. This investigation was recorded at the end of October 2019 and was made possible by the editors and contributors of the anthology The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North, Segregation and Struggle Outside of the South, NYU Press 2019. Welcome. Um, I'm Professor Jean Theo Harris. I teach at Brooklyn College. <laughs> um, and I wanted to welcome you to this first of two night panel on um, our new book, which is called The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North. Um, and so uh, what I thought I would do is I would start and sort of introduce the book and kind of what, how we got here. Um, and then Kamozi would talk a tiny bit more about the kind of larger project. And then tonight we're going to hear from three of the authors in the book. And then we're back here tomorrow night to hear from more authors. So it's like a two-night extravaganza. Um, so it's really exciting. We're really grateful to the People's Forum for hosting us and for hosting us for two nights and sort of giving us this space to sort of talk about a bunch of different um, places and issues um, of the Jim Crow North. Uh, so a little bit about the origins of this. Um, about 15 years ago, right, uh, Kamosi and I edited a book called Freedom North. Um, and it was a collection of essays basically trying to change the narrative around how we understand the civil rights movement and where we understand it. Um, a number of us had been writing in isolation about movements outside of the South and getting a lot of pushback for that research and having a lot of trouble publishing it. Um, and really, Kamosi was one of the few people who'd managed to publish a book on a movement outside of the North and in part had been able to do that only outside by... Outside of the South. I mean, outside of the South, thank you. Um, <laughs> by focusing it on one charismatic leader. Um, and so Freedom North brought together about a dozen essays looking at the civil rights struggle outside of the South. Um, and it, it really opened a space for many of us to, to begin to have community around, intellectual community around exploring and foregrounding that the problem of race in this country was not just a Southern problem, but a national problem, and that the civil rights struggles that took place outside of the South happened as widespread, as fervently, using the same kinds of tactics um, with a myriad of sort of leaders and organizers like they did across the South, um, really disrupting the idea that Either the movement in the North lagged behind the South, uh, refused nonviolence, um, was uh, a paler version because Northerners didn't know how to organize and didn't have the same kinds of community institutions. There were all sorts of myths that I think had prevented us from seeing sort of civil rights struggles outside of the South. So Freedom North, it takes us a number of years to do this, and one of the things that we identified was the need for intellectual community. Uh, and so a number of years later, we applied to do an NEH faculty seminar, which allows professors to then host a seminar in the summer for other faculty. And so in the summer of 2015, we brought 16 faculty 
working on movements outside of the South together at Sarah Lawrence in the Schomburg for two weeks to kind of learn together and kind of work on scholarship together. Um, and this is where this book begins. It begins in that seminar in 2015 uh, and all the different projects that people brought to that table to share with each other. Um, and at the end of the summer, we talked about what we wanted to do, and there was a sense that we wanted to kind of do a new anthology because in many ways, kind of working collectively that summer, we had kind of pushed past even some of the insights we had had in Freedom North um, in a couple of ways. Uh, one, that we needed to start using a term like the Jim Crow North because even as many of us had exposed kind of racial injustice outside of the South, there was a sense still a prevalent public sense that that racism was less systemic, was less legalized, was less upheld by the state. And so part of what we needed to do was to use a kind of terminology that refused that idea that, again, Northern racism was more private, more episodic, more sporadic. Um, a second insight I think we had in that summer seminar was sort of foregrounding the role of the law and also of law enforcement. And we're going to be spending some time talking about that tonight. Um, related to that, one of the things that I think people had shied away in in the first generation of scholars kind of in Freedom North was talking about uprisings because that had been so much the way the North had been defined was through uprisings. And so uh, none of the pieces in Freedom North dealt with uprisings. Um, and one of the things that you're going to see is the ways that this newer generation of work is absolutely taking up the role of uprisings in um, both outgrowths of organizing and then spurs for further organizing. Um, a fourth thing we were really talking about was the role of the media. Um, and I think there was an understanding, uh, there's kind of a public understanding of the role of the media in the civil rights movement is playing kind of a heroic role. And I think when you turn the attention to how the media treated the North, that heroic role really doesn't look very heroic. Um, and so one of the other themes we'll be talking about tonight and tomorrow is the ways that the kind of mainstream media based in the North covered Northern struggles very differently than they covered the South in this period. Um, and very much contributed to a sense, again, of sort of the North being both less racist and Northern movements being sort of, you know, uh, upstart troublemakers, you know, anti-American, right? All the kinds of things that started to be attached to Northern struggles um, were in part themes that Northern newspapers uh, and TV stations like the New York Times, even as they're covering Birmingham by 63 in very kind of serious, complicated ways, they're not covering New York in those same serious, complicated ways. Um, and so, so we, we had a number of insights that we felt like were beyond what we had done in that first generation of work. And so that's really where this book was born, um, out of that seminar and then out of a conference we had the next year at Bowdoin College. Um, and Brian Purnell will be here tomorrow night and talking kind of more about that. Um, and so it's really exciting um, to to both be here and be celebrating the book, but also to be here and be, one of the things I think anthologies do is by showing a whole variety of places, they, they refuse the ways that people are like, well, okay, there might've been this in New York, or there might've been this in, this might've happened in Milwaukee at this point. But I think the sum in some ways is greater than its parts in terms of um, really, asking us to take seriously the North in some ways as the vanguard of systemic racism. Um, and, and, and in many ways, our introduction in the book begins there with seeing kind of Jim Crow actually born in the North before the Civil War, right? So uh, voter disfranchisement, uh, school segregation, housing segregation, uh, refusing black people service on juries, right? All of the things that we associate with Southern Jim Crow actually emerge in the North before the Civil War. Um, and then some of the tactics of kind of the new Jim Crow or the 20th century Jim Crow emerge in the North first, right? So 
one of the other themes that runs through the book um, is how Northern segregation by the mid 20th century is defended not on a kind of segregation now and forever, but through arguments about colorblindness and kind of culture of poverty arguments that, that say that kind of black community formation and behavior and values is what's holding people back. And so the problem is cultural and therefore it needs cultural solutions, right? And this becomes um, one of the big ways to deflect movements for school desegregation, movements for housing, uh, open housing, movements to change the police is that um, you're not seeing Northerners say um, as much segregation now and forever. What you're hearing Northerners say is um, cultural deprivation, social pathology, these kinds of words. And these now define the reality we live in today, that that's how often segregation is defended even in our contemporary moment. So in many ways, uh, one of the, the arguments that runs through the book is to understand the Jim Crow North is to understand where we are today in this country. So let me turn it over to Kamosi and then Kamosi can introduce uh, the rest of everybody. Well, one of the things that any activists in these, uh, whether it's the housing movement or education movement, have to come to terms with after a while is how deeply rooted are the problems that we're dealing with? Did it just emerge five years ago or maybe 10 years ago? Uh, and, you know, the more you, and then when you see the problem reemerge, you say, well, gee whiz, I thought we solved that problem. You know, how does it cut, keep coming back? And the more you study it, the more you see that this has been, that Jim Crow was born in New York, right? It wasn't in the Jim Crow before New York. And um, that it goes back to slavery here and emancipation and the whole nine yards there. So, uh, so this book is trying to grapple with that. Uh, C. Van Woodward came out with the book Strange Career Jim Crow quite a while ago. And he led people to believe that it started in the South. And then he began to correct himself a few years later. But he said that, and he was the foremost expert on this subject, that he didn't know anything about racism in the North <laughs> from Yale. That was his statement there. So, uh, but you know, just like Malcolm X taught us that language is so important in trying to frame these things and by just, you know, it's like the North just had a, a little bit of racism and just man up and deal with it, right? And if you couldn't do that, something must be wrong with your family, or you, you know, talking bad about your mother and all those kinds of theories they had at the Ivy League schools. So we thought that to use the hard term uh, Jim Crow North would fix the subject so people would focus on it for a while. Of course, the other era, I think there's a couple of books actually have this thing as Jim Crow moves north, right? Which leads people to think, okay, Jim Crow, Crow wasn't here in the beginning, and so somebody imposed this Jim Crow on New York. Or something like you know, New York had the, one of the worst race riots in American history. Uh, what was that? 1863, mm -hmm. the draft riot where they burned the black community out uh, and stuff like that. And ethnic cleansing is a long-term uh, theme in New York. Stuyvesant Town, right? So the 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 way if you so some of these patterns are kind of important. So we see what Trump is doing. Uh, so, you know, what's, what's going on here? First, the language of pathology against the people you're going to tar target. So they did that to the black and Puerto Rican workers who lived in that neighborhood. And then they promised you this white paradise. So if you look at the advertisement for Stuyvesant Town, still got live in this paradise community, right? And we need to remember that uh, Thurgood Marshall actually lost the case. Uh, he won the Brown case, and he lost the Stuyvesant Town case. The uh, New York Supreme Court said that American apartheid was constitutional. So we, you know, that's what we're wrestling with uh, here. Uh, so anyway, I think I'll leave it there, and then we'll go into, I don't know what order you guys got, good, man. the chapters. Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll go first. Uh -oh. Is my head out? I can Screen, yeah. 
Very but long. Can you guys see past my hand? You sure? Okay. So, good evening. Like uh, my name is Shannon King. I teach at Fairfield University. Um, I'm going to talk uh, for a few minutes um, about the book um, and then sort of connect my work to the book. So, one of the things that Jean mentioned, as well as Kamozi, is the, the importance of pathologizing black people. And one of the ways that was done in the case that I want to talk about is through the media. So on the one hand, you both have this question of pathologizing black people, but you also have it played out through the media. Um, and so this played a really important role in sort of thinking about um, segregation and especially violence in New York City, because one of the major issues um, that obviously we're still dealing with is police brutality. But, but another issue that was always tied to police brutality was this question of safety, right? Um, and so while some would call this black-on-black -black crime, I try to frame it as a question of safety and also as a way of talking about intraracial um, crime. And there's uh, Brian Fernell. How you doing? Um, <laughs> but so, but so one of so again, one of the things um, that's important is the role of the media. Another important part um, in the book is is criminalizing and pathologizing black folks. And it's important to sort of focus on those particular strategies because that's exactly what it is. So instead of talking about the absence of providing services, in this case, protection to black people. Right, the media. Um, in the case that I'm talking about, Police Commissioner um, Valentine and Mayor LaGuardia, who's often viewed as the most liberal mayor in New York City's history, are the ones who are, are in many ways, um, using this language while at the same time framing a lot of their politics around a certain kind of a, another issue, colorblind or cosmopolitan. Um, politics in such ways where they're using this language of openness while at the same time punishing black people. So the images that I'll show will get at some of that. So the, so the, the chapter is called The Murder in Central Park, Racial Violence in the Crime Wave in New York City um, during 1930s, 1940s. And this is a, a, a quote from James Baldwin. Part of, the, part of what the work tries to do um, in a larger project, is to sort of think about the 30s and 40s as this moment um, where one can begin to see the ways in which crime and policing um, sort of develops to such a degree that by the time you get to the 1964 Harlem riot, and also in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and this language of occupation, you could already see it um, in the 30s and 40s, but, but it's not as it's not as developed and articulated until that moment, especially within the context of decolonization. But you can already sort of see these issues. And so I like to, um, to show um, the ways in which occupation is not just, a, in this case, a New York thing, but, but it's representative of a lot of urban areas in the, in the 60s. Um, so this is uh, Mayor LaGuardia, um, who is the mayor, mayor for three terms. Uh, and this is police commissioner. Um, Louis J. Valentine, who from the very beginning um, was using a discourse around violence. Um, I don't want those hoodlums coming and looking as if they stepped out of a barber's chair from now on, bring them in, must, uh, must up, right? So he was already sort of framing these discourses around violence. What's important about this and what's important about the discourses and pathologizing of black people is generally they will not say black people, right? But you know that when they say things like hoodlum or thug, they're specifically talking about a particular population. In the case of New York, usually Puerto Ricans and African Americans, right? Um, so part of the, the language that I tried to, to sort of make sense um, of um, thinking deeply about the major themes of the book, um, I sort of coined this phrase, uh, what I call Jim Crow policing, right? Which is this idea that if all citizens deserve the public good of safety, if those citizens aren't receiving the safety, then that's a, a form of Jim Crow, right? It's a form of Jim Crow policing. And so in many ways, 
African-Americans already in the 30s and 40s had to sort of figure out how to both ask for protection while at the same time not, be, uh, not allowing that um, invitation for protection to be viewed as a way to invite police brutality, right? And so that's a really complicated space that they were often in. Um, and so here's this, this a, a newspaper article looking at the absence of police actually protecting black women um, in, the, in the late 30s. Again, this is just a, another case. Um, again, police brutality. So again, part of this question becomes, how do you on the one hand um, request safety while at the same time um, make demands around the safety of requiring police to respect your dignity and not to over-police? And so you have this really complicated tension between over-policing or police brutality and under-policing, which I call a, a politics of safety. Right. So the, the way the work sort of pans out is, as I try to provide this earlier context in the late 30s by talking about demands for both more policing, but also um, demands for protection from police brutality. And so what, what begins to happen in the late 30s, early 40s, as these black communities are getting larger from the second great migration, and it's in the midst of um, the Great Depression, a lot of these communities are transitioning. And so what's happening is you have these black communities bleeding into white communities, and this creates all these different tensions. And so in November 1941, there's a case where three black kids happened to kill, unfortunately, a, 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 young, a young man in, in Central Park, which is where the, the title comes from. And so interestingly, Although in the case of the 30s, African-Americans were asking for police protection, all of a sudden when it happens to a white youth in Central Park, you get this flood of newspaper articles in the New York Times, right? So again, you didn't have the same kind of coverage in the New York Times for black folks, but now you get it for white folks. And so you, you see the, you, again, you, you see this language of hoodlums hunted and fatal stabbing crime outbreak. Um, and, and you can sort of see the dates. And then you begin to see how, again, sort of looking at this binary, where on the one hand, in the case of the 30s, late 30s, even early 40s, you do not get black folks protected, but all of a sudden you have 250 police officers coming into these sort of transitional areas, quote unquote, protecting the community. And really what they're doing is engaging in violence towards black folks, right? Um, and so what you also get with the newspapers, again, this is all the New York Times, this is, and also the Daily News, um, you get you know, the images of these black youth in the newspapers. Um, so not only are they front page headlines, but you're also getting these images of these young folks, right? And, you, and if one was to sort of go into the, the sources, you could see sort of the ways that they wrap both the language of hoodlums and thugs with blackness, right? Um, which again is a way to sort of thinking about how folks are being pathologized. We're steering away from the question of the resources, which is safety and protection for black folks. Um, and so here's a, another interesting images of white folks protesting demands for the safety of, of white folks. Now in the, in, I'm not gonna read some of this, but what begins to happen, and again, part of what I'm trying to show here um, is how, on the one hand, again, where black folks are asking for safety and protection, um, white folks begin to do the same kind of thing. And the, the question of Jim Crow is who gets uh, the privilege of being protected? And so you get the flood of letters coming from whites demanding protection. And of course, um, the police flood these transitional communities and begin to, to protect folks. Um, and so some of the, some of the letters are um, straightforward and plain, and some of them are extremely racist. Um, and so part of what I try to do is to, is to tease out both um, ways in which one can use language or liberal colorblind language at the same time uh, still focusing 
on how one is sort of framing criminality around blackness without using the language of thug, et cetera. And then other, and some of the other letters are just straightforward racism and, and, and pretty violent. And so part of what you get from the, from the, um, the letters from whites is this question of we demand, we white people demand protection. They're being very, very explicit about both where they live, what they need, and in some cases, they're giving different kinds of um, examples of what's happening in their neighborhoods. So some of these letters are speaking to that. Um, and you can probably see, or you probably can't see, but the, so the police of New York have not cleaned out the gangs of inward thugs who molest the white people and other, et cetera, et cetera. And so part of what happens and part of what's important is that what you begin to get is this critique, this heavy critique on LaGuardia. And what's interesting, again, is that on the one hand, although he's, get, he, he's sort of receiving, in many ways, this hate mail, at the same time, black folks are being punished, right? And so, again, you get this sort of ways in which the only way um, for Mayor LaGuardia to demonstrate that he's really a good mayor is partly through punishing black people, right? Um, and so, of course, you get a response from um, Harlem and the black community, and that response is both responding to the fact of police brutality, because now you have all these sort of um, uh, police officers throughout Harlem, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Queens. I mean, I don't put all the, the newspaper articles and letters there, but they're, they're basically um, occupying black spaces the way James Baldwin would talk about it in the 60s. And so the black response is both to the fact of police brutality, but also uh, the response is directly to the press. And so they're very clear that the, that the press is framing criminality. Right? They're very, very clear. And at the same time, they're trying to make demands for, for better policing. And so you get the NAACP and a lot of different um, organizations responding. Um, in this case, this is a, a, a black woman who's sort of framing these questions around both, on the one hand, critical of the newspapers, and on the other hand, she's also sort of demanding police protection. And so part of really what the, what the chapter really tries to do is sort of to get at that nuance and complexity of over-policing and under-policing while at the same time identifying the absence of police protection and also identifying the ways in which the press is really um, constructing blackness in a particular way. Um, more black women um, making complaints about violence in, in the newspapers. Um, and so again, you know, with this invitation of more police, of course, you get um, more police brutality. And so part of what happens is um, as you go through this moment, you get police riots um, and violence, of course, in Detroit. And eventually, you get the, the Harlem riot of, of um, 1943. And so part of what I try to do in a chapter is sort of make um, gesture towards this argument that in many ways one cannot understand uprisings only through looking at political and economic issues, but they have to look at the ways in which police are always there um, and on a very everyday basis engaging in different forms of police brutality, both to protect black folks while at this, sorry, protect white people while at the same time underprotecting black people. Mm -hmm. So that's that. Thank you. So, okay. hi everybody. Um, my name is Aliyah Dunn Salahuddin. I am a native to San Francisco. Um, and so I bring the West into this story. Uh, my, I descend from people who migrated to the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1940s. Um, and so I'm a second generation African-American San Franciscan who grew up in a really large African-American community, but also saw that community diminish over time to now there's only 3% African-American people in San Francisco. But um, African-Americans and African-American history and the black freedom struggle in San Francisco was really a key part of not just developing um, the culture 
um, and the larger civil rights movement within the nation, but also in raising the consciousness. So it's no coincidence that ethnic studies starts in San Francisco. It's no coincidence that the Black Panther Party starts right across the bridge. Um, and it's no coincidence that I'm here talking about the Jim Crow North, because San Francisco is often seen as this liberal hotbed, one of the most liberal places in the country. Um, but both in my research and having grown up there, um, I think one of the this duality that everybody's talking about of you can having a liberal state, but within that liberal state, as some people are gaining rights, uh, you can also have the denial and the perpetuation of oppression um, at the same exact time. And so San Francisco was a place where African Americans didn't really come until the 1940s with World War II and the war industry to work. You know, they came for new opportunities. Uh, they came because it's a beautiful place. They came to, you know, see the water. One of the, one of the things my grandparents wanted to do was see the ocean, see the beach, to imagine a world that was different than Texas or Arkansas or Louisiana, where they experienced these atrocities um, that many people didn't talk about. Um, my chapter focuses on the 1966 uprising, which happened in San Francisco. Um, and one of the interesting things is we're talking about the ways in which history is framed, but I think one of the things my es essay highlights is the ways in which history can be hidden because the city has a really deep investment in the liberal image. And so these are the kinds of stories and histories that people don't want to tell. And also uh, the community itself was so traumatized from the events that they don't necessarily talk about them. Um, so in a conversation I was having with uh, uh, Dr. Kamosi, you know, he mentioned something like, you know, people of my generation not knowing that they were growing up in a war, but knowing that there were casualties. Um, so my particular chapter focuses on the event of the uprising, not only to bring light and attention to the fact that there are African-American communities in San Francisco, and they're still there, although the dominant narrative is this about this erasure, the last, but we are still there, you know? Um, I took a plane all the way here to tell you that, that there are black San Franciscans, okay? Uh, and, uh, um, and there are still communities like Bayview Hunters Point, which is a name many of you haven't heard, but it is the largest population of African-Americans in San Francisco. So you can go to the next slide, thank you. And so in Hunters Point, September 27th, this all started after, well, it didn't, this, this uprising wasn't, I don't think, a clear beginning or, or an end, but it was a result of decades of uh, the state forces um, and services ignoring and neglecting the community. Bayview Hunters Point was an incredibly organized community. Um, and in the wake of all these uprisings that, you know, from 64 um, on the coattails of Watts, after the killing of young Matthew Peanut Johnson, who is a 15-year-old um, African-American unarmed, um, and he was shot in the back by a veteran police officer while fleeing from a car that was suspected to be stolen at the time. When I interviewed people in the community, one of the things they talked about was, and I'm just going to quote Doris, who is a, a native, well, not native, but longtime resident. She said, we're from the South, and we know how to shoot guns. So when that officer said that they sh he shot that gun into the air and somehow killed Matthew in the back, we knew that wasn't true. Because if you shoot a gun in the air, you'll get hit in the head or you get hit in the shoulder and I know how to use a gun. So there was this like um, understanding that this was an injustice. He was a beloved community member. Um, and in a lot of ways, it was uh, a match to an already highly flammable situation. So the governor, Pat Brown, is quoted as saying, we are not gonna have revolution within this country and we are not gonna have another Watts. And so over, as you guys can see, um, over a thousand National Guards, California Highway Patrol, police officers from all over, storm into this very small, working class, African-American community with the goal of meeting force with force. This is not gonna be at another Watts, we are gonna crush this. Really overlooking the fact that the people in the community had organized um, using these quote unquote proper channels for decades, um, staging sit-ins, um, uh, petitioning, running for offices, making their own co-ops, doing these kinds of things that the culture of poverty narrative doesn't really look at, that this was not a deprived culture. It was actually a culture that was denied access to the same resources that other populations were gaining access to. Um, and so if we go to the next uh, slide, 
One of the other, I think, important things to highlight about that I want you to walk away with um, knowing about San Francisco is that there was a strong movement and sister movements happening simultaneously throughout the North to combat the same forces that people were identifying in the South, right? So um, this is in 1961, and this is, um, and all these photos, by the way, are, uh, you can find, they're from the San Francisco Historical Society um, and the public library, and they're in the footnotes if you, just to give credit to the librarians and the photographers and all the, the people that make these sources available to us. But the, these are people protesting um, segregated lunch counters that were in San Francisco. They didn't have to have a black and white sign, but African-American people knew that they would not be served. Um, one of the other unique things about San Francisco is that if you were Chinese, if you were Native American, if you were Mexican, right, where California was Mexico at one point, these sort of same forces were used against those communities. So when black people came into um, the scene in San Francisco, so to speak, in mass numbers in response to the war industry, those same forces that discriminated against Chinese and discriminated against Mexicans and discriminated against the indigenous in the area were used against African Americans. So I think that San Francisco is a really great um, example of where we are at today. We live in a very diverse country, more diverse, and that diversity often acts as a veneer hiding the reality that many people are still kept from material wealth and opportunity. Um, the next slide is another image. Now, this is, a, this is from 1964 in the Republican Net Republican National Convention, which was actually held in San Francisco. So San Francisco is also um, a site which makes sense that San Francisco is also the place, one of the wealthiest concentrations of some of the wealthiest people in the world now live in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's also, I argue, the beginning of uh, the rise of conservatism, which really uh, happens in the late 60s, early 70s in, Cal in places like California and in places like San Francisco. Um, and so when we think about um, white supremacy, we often have this one sort of image of people who are hooded or these evil people from the South. Um, when a young man in San Francisco says, like, in the South, they get you with the noose, in 1963, he says this, but um, in San Francisco, they get you with that pen and paper, man, they kill you with that pen and paper. And so it speaks to many of the same things both uh, Shannon, myself, and, and, and all the other authors up here have spoken to. Uh, let's go to the next one. And so... Now I'll bring you back to Bayview Hunters Point. So um, it was a, one of the hottest days in the summer and word gets out, Matthew Peanut Johnson, he was called Peanut by people who loved him, was um, shot in broad daylight. Um, and this happened like around two, three o'clock in the afternoon, late afternoon. And so, and the body was there for at least for over an hour before people came. Um, so he literally, people watched him die. Um, I talked to people who said, you know, my son saw him die and nobody helped him and he was worried about himself. So there was a, I think my essay really looks at not just the forces of Jim Crow itself, but what happens um, if those, the anguish of a community or the needs of a community are not addressed. And I also argue that the same circumstances that created these uprisings, we live within today. Um, and so it resulted in three days of unrest um, there were 10 people that were shot and killed. Um, you can keep going. Um, these are just some images uh, from Bayview Hunters Point. Um, yeah, you can keep going. And this is the image I use um, for the chapter because for me, I look at these people and I see my uncle, I see my cousins, I see my brothers um, in the faces of these people. And it's unfortunate that these faces and these images are still things that we see today. Um, you know, the uprising itself is not what the chapter is about. It's about the circumstances that lead to it. And then also the backlash the community got once the uprising is over. Um, there wasn't a lot of material damage to the city per se, but there was a deep wound caused in the community. Um, and as a result of the uprising, there was continued lack of neglect almost as a systemic um, punishment. And so places like the Bayview Hunters Point Community Center closes. Um, but it also politicized a lot of people to who people say they went from the uprising to join the Black Panther Party, or they went from the uprising to um, organize for ethnic studies at San Francisco State. 
Um, we can go to the next. There's only a couple more. Um, this is uh, somebody's car that was parked in front of the Bayview Hunters Point um, Community Center, which was closed a couple months after the uprising, just to see the level of force. So um, I'm going to make a couple more points, then I'll close, because I want to leave time for say and for questions, is that there was such a level of force. Bayview Hunters Point is a very small community, but if you have a thousand, almost two thousand law enforcement officers with tanks mm -hmm. and guns shooting into buildings with children, shooting into unarmed crowds, shooting into cars, what is the psychological impact of that? Um, and how does that change a community? How does that traumatize? How does that politicize? Um, one of the other things I want us to walk away from knowing is that um, the liberal image of San Francisco, and there's quite a lot, of, a lot of examples in the chapter that go over the ways in which people are denied access to adequate housing, how they experience police brutality, how they are denied access to education. It's all in the, the, the book. But I hope you guys walk away from here knowing that there are still African-American people who struggle with these same forces in San Francisco, who are being pushed out of their homes, whose schools are being closed down, um, and that this uprising is just one part of a longer story of a larger civil rights struggle um, that happened within the North. Um, and they're still happening to the point where they've almost disappeared a whole community of people. But I'm a representative of the fact that we are still here. Um, and I think this work is so important because um, it's important because we live within it, right? Um, and so I thank you for your attention and I hope you enjoy the chapter. Good evening. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm Saya Bergen. I teach and work at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. Um, and I have an essay in the book that, in some way, you don't know how to do this. No. Um, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to do this either. Can anybody read the actual? Oh. <laughs> so exciting. Um, so my essay in the book actually builds pretty well, which is why we're all here tonight, on Shannon and Aaliyah's pieces, particularly in terms of thinking about the criminal justice system, police brutality, uh, the media, and uprisings. Uh, so I'm going to tell just a brief story tonight as a way to sort of talk a little bit about what my essay does. Uh, but the big idea of my essay is to try to open up this notion of the Jim Crow judiciary. And I do that through the gentleman behind me, uh, Judge George Crockett Jr., who was a criminal court judge in Detroit in the late 1960s and throughout the 1970s. And it was really through sort of seeing his critiques of the criminal justice system, but particularly his critique of his peers, right? So other people who were on the bench, meeting out justice, meeting out injustice. And it was really through wrestling with what he thought the problems of his peers were that I came to this concept of the Jim Crow judiciary. Um, and so I wanted to give us the opening quote, right, which the chapter title is from. And so this is Judge Crockett, and he says, there is no equal justice for black people in our criminal courts today. And what's more, there never has been. And this is the shame of our whole judicial system. And this is not, this is so not because the written law says it shall be so, rather it is so because our judges by their rulings make it so. So I argue in the book through Crockett and his critiques uh, that what he was really experiencing and critiquing was what I call the Jim Crow judiciary, which is a two-track uh, criminal justice system that upholds the rights of white folks in particular, as well as the economically comfortable at the expense um, and by stripping the rights of folks of color, particularly African-American folks and poor folks. Folks. And so I'm going to tell a little story tonight about how I kind of came to this notion uh, through an instance in which people, uh, especially white conservatives in Detroit, tried to get Crockett impeached. So I'm going to tell that story now and then come back to this Jim Crow judiciary thing. Thank you. So uh, the story begins with a group, a black power group that was called the Republic of New Africa. 
On March 29, 1969, they were holding their first year's anniversary celebration in the New Bethel Church, which is pictured here on the left. And late that night, uh, one of the leaders of the RNA, Gaidio Bedelli, was driving away. He'd just given this big speech, and there are 142 African-American women, men, and children still left in this church. Some white rookie police officers uh, kind of drive up to the church, and you can see this uh, diagram behind me of sort of how things went down. Uh, they drive up to the church. Events kind of get a little cloudy from there, but a shootout or a shoot-in happens, um, and one of the white officers ends up dead. Uh, the other white officer who's there on the scene claims that these men who were shooting at them were RNA members, that they ran into the church, so they call for backup, um, and about 20 or 30 Detroit police officers show up within about 90 seconds, and they just start spraying gunfire into the church, right? They don't know that there are 142 men, women, and children in there. They just start indiscriminately spraying. And then they realize people are in there. And what they do is not check how people are, but they start beating people. And then they mass arrest every single person in the church, claiming that the shooters must have been sort of amongst them. Um, so what happens on the back of that is that Gaidio Bedelli, who had been kind of driving away, does this sort of phone tree until people arrive at a person that they'll see as a sort of friend to all of these people who have been arrested. And the person that they end up calling and kind of rousing out of bed at four or five in the morning is a guy called Judge George Crockett Jr., who's on the criminal court at the time. Now, thank you. Uh, why would they go to Judge Crockett? So not just because he's a judge, but because he's a pretty radical judge, and he's been a friend of the movement for quite a while. So a little bit of biography. George Crockett uh, kind of became lawyer in the 1930s and 40s. He ended up working for the UAW, the United Auto Workers, for quite a while. And then he becomes the only African-American judge to be involved with the Smith Act trials in the early 1950s. And this really gives him a window onto the ways in which some people, particularly for radical politics, and in this case communists, get stripped of their due process rights, right? Um, and he starts to really think critically about the courts, really think critically about whose rights get upheld and whose don't in particular kinds of ways. He goes on to do a lot of work, pro bono work, uh, lawyering for civil rights activists. On the back of that, he decides that he actually wants to run for an elected office. He makes a stab at the city council in Detroit, which is uh, a year before this really adorable picture of him on the right. Um, and he doesn't do well in that race, in part because he gets red-baited by the FBI, which is a whole other story. Um, and then in 1966, the people elect him onto the criminal courts. So he is one of 13 judges that gets elected in 1966, and he's one of three African-American judges that year. Thank you. So Crockett is on the bench for less than a year when that huge uprising that takes place in Detroit takes place. So in late July 1967, uh, a five-day uprising takes place in Detroit uh, following... Did anybody see the movie Detroit? Good, great. It's a terrible movie. Um, but right, it's five days of uprising that happen after a sort of after hours establishment gets raided. 43 African-American folks die. Many, no, sorry, 43 people die. 33 of them are African-American. Most of them die at the hands of the National Guard and or Detroit police. Um, it's a very, very violent affair. It's a police riot, as uh, John Conyers would say, and to borrow Shannon's phrase from earlier as well. And Judge Crockett's on the bench. And one of the things that he sees and witnesses and tries to stop while he's on the bench there is what comes to be called assembly line justice. So what happens on the first day of the uprising is that the prosecutor, the Wayne County prosecutor, William Cahalan, explicitly asks all of the criminal court judges uh, to essentially find ways to withhold bail as an option and just detain, detain, detain the hundreds of people that they're arresting all of the time. Hundreds of people get arrested um, illegally because there's a curfew proclamation out, but there isn't. The first pro curfew proclamation doesn't say that people will get charged. So actually people get arrested and brought into jail and held illegally. 
the judges are like, that's fine. And in fact, most of the judges, except for Crockett, with the exception of Crockett, just sort of say, absolutely, Cahalan, we're on the, the police's side with this. Of course, that's what we're going to do. And in fact, if people can meet bail, we're going to raise that bail higher just to absolutely ensure that people can't get out. And Crockett sees all of this happening, and he's having none of it. So his is the only court where he allows people to actually bring in legal representatives that entire week. His is the only court um, where a substantial number of people are actually set a bail that they can meet. And his is the only court where he tells the bailiff that if he doesn't honor um, the bonds that people are meeting, um, then he's going to imprison the bailiff himself. So he really tries to go against. But to him, this is a kind of microcosm of the macrocosm, right? How the court behaves in that week of the uprising is very indicative of how it's treating African-American folks who come into the court every single day, right? And so he starts, particularly after the uprising, to be much, much sharper in what he's just not going to kind of stand for. Um, and he, in that kind of way, also starts to gain, the repu gain a reputation and get a lot of attention in the white conservative press immediately, who are already starting to make these murmurings that he needs to be in some way removed from the bench. So all of that is really important to understanding what happens then with the new Bethel. So this is Crockett. Um, what Crockett is sort of aroused at four or five in the morning. He's told what happens at the New Bethel, that all these people have been arrested. And he goes down to the police precinct, um, and he demands a list of people who have been detained, which they don't have. And in fact, most people are still being held on buses in a parking garage under the police precinct at this point. So he says, absolutely not. I'm having none of this. He sets up a court in the police precinct itself and demands, uh, he sort of presents a writ of habeas corpus, which of course means that people have to present the bodies. They have to, the police have to come in and say, here's all the people, right? Um, and in that morning, the prosecutors, in fact, moved to release about 130 of the people because obviously on most of these people, on, on all of these people, they have no real evidence. Um, and then the prosecutors um, seek to sort of keep about nine or 10 people behind because they've Ill illegally run nitrate tests on people. Crockett sees that that's happened. He says, not on my watch. You can't, you can't detain people based on this illegally got evidence. And so he releases the people. Um, and it's kind of after he calls, he allows for the release of these last nine or 10 people that sort of all hell breaks loose, particularly with Detroit police officers. Thank you. So over the next few days, this huge controversy kind of uh, gets ramped up by the white press, by the Detroit Police Officer Association, essentially their union kind of right. Um, the Detroit News, which is this very conservative white news outlet, puts out cartoons like this and really scathing editorials about how Crockett is inherently biased because he's African-American, about how he can't mete out proper justice, and about how he's a quote-unquote activist judge, right? And they start calling for his impeachment. And his impeachment starts to become this big statewide kind of issue, right? The DPOA, the Detroit Police Officer Association, off-duty cops and their wives start picketing outside the recorder's court and putting out all these statements. It just kind of erupts in hysteria for a while. At the same time, um, African-American folks are really trying to rally behind Crockett um, and try to make the point that he actually upheld their rights. And it's that in the very upholding of their due process rights uh, that white people are, particularly white conservatives in the city, are really like, they're not, that's a point that they're not understanding, that essentially that that is what happened, right? So they start, the RNA comes out and holds a press conference and says, what about all of us who got shot? What about all of us who got beat. Um, attorneys, black attorneys start coming out and saying Judge Crockett is important here. He was upholding the law, etc. So we start to see these two kind of camps emerge, right, at the same time that this impeachment stuff is being called for. Thank you. Um, and about a week later, uh, a lot about 40 different African-American-led organizations across the city that include uh, African-American police officers unions, uh, really radical black student groups, et cetera, uh, unite and create a black united front. Um, and they march both for Crockett so that he stays instated, but also to point out the hypocrisy of Detroit police and white media in particular. I want to end by um, thinking about how Crockett defends himself, um, particularly in this sort of week following. Um, so Crockett 
this is, uh, and I talk about this in the, in the essay, right? Crockett is eventually sort of taken in front of the new Judicial Tenure Committee um, of the Michigan State House. He's eventually found to be in the right. He's allowed to stay in his job. And there's a whole flurry of legal organizations that come out and go, whoa, 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 no. Crockett was in the right. He upheld Miranda rights. He upheld people's due process rights. There's no way this, uh, he should be removed from the bench in any way. But it's Crockett himself who sort of very most clearly understands what's happened here, right? That he's gone against a judicial norm and that that judicial norm was exactly what Jim Crow a Jim Crow judiciary is built to do, right? That it's there to uphold uh, rightful white citizenry in particular at the expense and by stripping away due process and other rights from African-Americans in particular. So in his epic, amazing sort of first statement that he gives following, um, and this is what I'll end on, he says, indeed it is precisely because I followed the law equally and without partiality that questions and accusations are being raised. Understand, of course, why the hue and cry arose, an angry prosecutor lacking police evidence or testimony which might produce a probable suspect and resentful that ordinary and undemocratic police practices were challenged, chose to divert public attention to Judge Crockett. So it's really in his statement that he sort of says, here's the triumvirate of how a Jim Crow judiciary works. The expectation that African-American folks don't have rights that white folks are bound to respect um, with the judiciary allowing the police to run roughshod over those rights and white media in particular coming in and backing up that particular story. So this is kind of a success story in a way and that he doesn't sort of get deposed, but it's also, I would argue, and I do argue in the piece, uh, the most important lesson we should take for it is, is exactly what he wants us to hear about how the judiciary plays this really important role in meeting out Jim Crow justice. If I were to give a feminist critique of not only this work and all the work about San Francisco that's coming out is that it doesn't really include the voices of females. And that's part of what I want to draw out is that there are women who are mentioned in my essay who are doing the organizing I end with the voices of two women. So for me, I think they're a big part of the narrative. And part of what I read in a lot of the essays in this anthology was the highlighted particular role of women. So I do think between the two, they are highlighted more. Um, but in San Francisco in particular, it's very like Black Panther masculine, but the women are at the forefront. There was a group of women in Baby Hunters Point called the Big Five who were the ones. There are streets named after them, but the irony is people don't even know who they are now or why the streets are named what they are. So part of what I try to do is um, uh, engage this question of violence um, around um, this question of safety and protection. And so a lot of the scholarship that you mentioned, a lot of it looks at, in particular, um, black women in the South, in, in, in the case of Georgia, um, uh, in the carceral state. Um, and then some of the more recent literature is beginning to sort of look at black women engagements with crime um, and uprisings as part of the Black Panther Party for example, mm -hmm. right? Um, so part of what I try to do is sort of engage this question of safety, not necessarily in, in the context of police brutality, and sort of to articulate the fact that Black people were very clear about interracial violence, right? Instead of using the language of um, Black-on-Black crime, precisely because Black women were often the victims of this violence, mm -hmm. right? And so it was important for me to figure out how do I do that? Um, because in the moment that I'm writing about, um, in terms of the people who are articulating these issues, um, except for uh, Ella Baker, who's, who years later would be um, the leader of the, the NAACP chapter, mm -hmm. late, late 40s and 50s, but the period that I'm writing about, most of the people who are leaders are, are, are men, right? Um, but the women's voices come through the letters. And so it was important for me to highlight that they were articulating um, these questions around crime. And in many ways, they were organized. And, and in many ways, their articulation was very different than how crime was framed by the newspapers, right? So they were able to, on the one hand, talk about crime against Black people by other Black folks, but not to equate criminality with Blackness, 
Um, and so that was really important to be able to sort of think about both um, the framing of crime, but also the ways in which crime, crime was framed as an expression of blackness and how, you know, in many ways, black women were very clear about what was going on in there and, and how they were making certain kind of demands. So, right. So I work on Detroit. And so it, it's like, it, it's in a way it's, and I've talked to Crystal Moten, who's going to talk tomorrow night about this, right? That like, part of like working on the Rust Belt in particular is about even, it's like a doubling down of the masculine sort of understanding of what kind of movements happen there, right? So if we think about the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, like we don't think about any of the women that are involved like Marion Kramer and other people, right? Um, and it's really hard to kind of pick through some of the histories that are really, really, I mean, they continue, particularly histories of Detroit really continue to be invested in like, where the men are, what are the men doing, and and how are they working in this place? And like certainly the uprising kind of history is a kind of a part of that. Um, and so I, I'm interested in thinking through the ways in which um, the women have been kind of right there all along, and the, and the historians have just went kind of, you know, like with Marion Kramer in particular, Dorothy Aldridge. So, you know, the People's Tribunal that comes up following. Uh, the Detroit Uprising, that gets started by a woman, and all we remember are these two men who do really, really important work around it, right? But I think I think the women are kind of, to borrow a phrase from Jean, kind of hidden in plain sight in a lot of ways with some of this history. But I also think that part of what I, I'm also really interested in is kind of leaning into the kind of masculinity of this sort of and being like, well, okay. You know, I think that one of the things I kept thinking about a lot is how the concept of a militant gets gendered as male time and time again through instances like the New Bethel, right? Through cartoons like this that just get pumped out day after day of this sort of suited and booted black man with a gun, right? And that militant just gets mailed and mailed and mailed over again. And so maybe the part of the gender analysis really needs to be unpacking some of that mm -hmm. a little more too. One of the arguments we're making is like, if you look at the New York Times, right? And how the New York Times is covering, for instance, police brutality in 1963 in Birmingham. And then in 1964, when there's an uprising following the killing of Jimmy Powell, King is invited by city leaders. Martin Luther King is invited to the city by city leaders. And then when he has the audacity to say, we need a civilian complaint review board, he's basically thrown out of town, mm -hmm. right? And so, but the way that we tell the history of the civil rights movement, and again, one of the things that we were trying to kind of question in this is that story, that story of what happens to, like, so there's a kind of um, an expose of police brutality in Birmingham on the pages of the New York Times, but not, right, a kind of marking of both this history of police brutality in New York City or the same kind of attention to Dr. King when he comes up to New York City and says, hey, there's a problem here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's not how we remember what King is doing in 64, right? right? It's, so the idea that he's here and the idea that he, um, he's saying there has to be a substantive, not just like a, a, you know, not just like a token civilian complaint review board. And then they're like, well, that's not we invited you. You don't, you know, and, but again, that's mm -hmm. the, the way that that's not how we tell this, tell the story of the 60s, I think speaks to the point that you're making, right? Which is over and over and over, this is a systemic problem people point it out, people organize around it, and then that history gets um, either ignored or mistold. Well, one of the things that Clarence Taylor's uh, book, Fight the Power, deals with is to uh, that the police in New York are major political force mm -hmm. yeah. and have been decisive in many of the municipal elections. Yeah. And he goes back to uh, firing line. Who, who the, the racist who ran that? Buckley. Buckley. Is it William, William Buckley? Buckley. Yeah, oh, who was running for mayor at the time, right? That he based based it on his racist campaign about the, with the police, right, and stuff like that. And you, we know Giuliani did the same kind of thing to launch his. So, the, so I think obviously we've been doing stop killer cop campaigns was a big thing we did in the '80s and '90s and all that. Uh, but I think that the new scholarship uh, the insight is that we're actually dealing with a, it's not just the police, but the police are a major political force. And the fact that police power in New York goes all the way to Albany, mm -hmm. 
the way they're getting off the hook all the time, they say this is legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I strangled him to death. Mm-hmm. It's legal. Well, how did that get legal? Well, right? So years ago, the police had state laws passed. To, 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 right? So this is a, it's not even just a city struggle. But it's a statewide struggle we're involved in here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's systematic, but we're talking about a very big system mm-hmm. uh, that we have to. And I, I think Taylor's book is a nice uh, kind of required reading for us if we're going to try to make uh, mm-hmm. systematic change, I think, because he, he's making us think about, because what he's dealing with is all the fake reforms that have happened, mm-hmm. Right. You know, like, okay, we, we, we've got a furor about this. We want civilian, they're going to give you a fake civilian exactly. review board, right? Mm-hmm. And he, he covers that in the book there. Right. And the, the, the other part, and it, and it gets, I mean, I think exactly what you say, I, I agree with everything that, that you said. Um, one of the ways that it also plays out is the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association. Mm-hmm. And they also have huge political power. And so in many ways, you know, it's really not the bad apple sort of trope. Um, It's so institutionalized. And so in many ways, um, when uh, de Blasio um, went to the funeral of the two police officers, I think in 20, is it 2015? Um, And um, the police force turned their back on him. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, I think a, a, a year later, um, the city gives the police gives the police department more money to get larger. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the the context that mm-hmm. we're in, and so I think it's very different. So the things like, uh, uh, in terms of the gentleman's earlier question about abolition, I mean, it's really complicated because the machinery, like the the what what some scholars call the carceral mach- machinery, is so. Uh, capacious mm-hmm. that is difficult to put our finger on it mm-hmm. um, and the question of abolition becomes essential because it's not just about a court case and mm-hmm. winning a court case it's the whole thing is so deeply um, rooted mm-hmm. in connections between the governor the mayor the police departments the PBA etc mm-hmm. I mean it's really complicated and difficult to to untangle and I think just to add to that, I think, right, if Judge Crockett was here tonight, he would caution us to think about how police brutality cannot stand without judges, right? And that, and prosecutors, right? But he would be sitting here saying, you can't have any kind of police reform that's at all meaningful unless something's changing in the judiciary, unless something is also meaningfully changing in the courts themselves, both with judges and prosecutors, right? And so to sort of think that that police can be reformed just by looking at kind of like what Shannon's saying here, just at this institution, just the police force itself, it's just, you're, it's, it's never gonna happen, right? Mm-hmm. So we're back tomorrow for part two. Um, tomorrow we're gonna be focusing more on two other areas of kind of the Jim Crow North being kind of segregated and unequal schooling, both at the kind of primary and secondary level, but also in terms of higher education and then employment discrimination. Um, and sort of taking up two other. So please join us. We're going to have like a whole different team up here um, for kind of part two of sort of really thinking about sort of injustice and struggle in the Jim Crow North. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for tuning in. If you wish to learn more, you can sign up to our newsletter at www.peoplesforum.org. We encourage you to check out our other podcasts, including The New Intellectuals, moderated by author and historian Jordan T. Camp.